Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Grace Blakely, an English economics and politics commentator, columnist, journalist, and author. She is the staff writer for Tribune magazine and was previously the economics commentator of the New Statesman. Her first book, Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, was published in 2019 by Repeater Books, and her second book, The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism, was published in October 2020. She is currently writing her next book, which is to be published by Bloomsbury in 2022. She graduated from Oxford with a first-class honors degree in politics, philosophy, and economics. I welcome Grace Blakely to Savage Minds. This week, you penned how corporate welfare props up the billionaire class, emblazoned with a photo of Jeff Bezos, who seems to be the Pictionary reference of billionaires many of us love to hate with the subtitle, after briefly dropping to second, Amazon's Jeff Bezos is once again the richest man in the world this year with a total wealth of $188.4 billion. You write, last year, during the peak of the global pandemic, the world created more than 700 new billionaires. In the year since, another 500 have been created, but the total wealth on the Forbes list has increased from $5 trillion to $13 trillion, the largest increase ever recorded in any one-year period. China topped the list for the highest number of new billionaires, with the U.S. coming in second, end quote. In your article, you go on to explain this explosion in billionaire wealth as being due to the asset purchasing programs undertaken by central banks, resulting in an asset price inflation and increased wealth inequality. Should people be allowed to have that much wealth? Is Jeff Bezos the problem or is the system the problem? Well, I think I think part of the reason that, you know, these issues are so under discussed is because we really lack like a a frame for understanding the extent of the wealth of those people at the very very top so just to put this in context you know to count to a million to count the numbers to a million would take you 12 days to count the numbers to a billion would take you 32 years people kind of hear the word billionaire and they think oh you know that's like just a very rich person in the same way that a millionaire is but to actually understand the scale of the wealth that these people have and this isn't just one billion this is like many many billions of uh, of dollars is quite difficult you know our minds can't really comprehend uh, the vastness of these sums so i think there's that which is a, just a kind of um a difficulty that people have in really understanding the scale of the problem i think you know um, various different uh, advocacy groups and organizations have done some interesting work on this uh, looking at you know the amount of wealth held by the top, say, 10 billionaires versus the amount of wealth held by you know, the bottom several billion people. Um, and, you know, it's something like eight billionaires have the same wealth as the bottom, you know, half of the global population or something. I'll need to double check that. But Oxfam have done some uh, some research on that uh, several years in a row now. Um, so, yeah, there's the question of scale. There's also, I think, this kind of deeply um, entrenched ideology, which suggests that those at the very top have gotten to the top by hard work, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, and, and that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, the thing that I wanted to to write about in the article was to say, you know, not only is that ideology deeply flawed, right? Because there's no, no, really no such thing as a kind of, you know, an in inverted commas self-made person. You're relying upon a whole set of resources that are provided by the public sector, by society um, to do anything. You know, you're relying on education, healthcare, infrastructure, like a legal system, all of these things that are provided collectively. But also, um, you know, it's very easy to miss the fact that most billionaires don't really do that much and certainly don't do that much of value to reach the levels of wealth that they have. So, you know, um, a big factor explaining um, the massive increase in Bezos's wealth is, as I wrote in that article, this, this um, set of policies being undertaken by central banks at the moment, uh, often referred to as quantitative easing, basically whereby central banks create new money. Um, and they use that money to purchase assets from the private sector. So, um, you know, generally government bonds, but it can be any kind of asset. So, you know, equities or whatever, corporate bonds. And what that does is it pumps money into um, the, the financial sector and investors find themselves flush with cash. They're like, what can we do with this cash? So they buy up other 
other assets, generally kind of equities. And it's why we've seen this massive explosion in stock prices, particularly in the US. But also you've seen it um, affect things like property prices, bond yields, etc. Um, so that has, yeah, been a big factor explaining why Bezos's wealth has gone up so much, because obviously a lot of it is in Amazon shares, which have just exploded. Um, and that has, again, you know, that's been a factor increasing wealth inequality, um, creating basically what look like a whole series of bubbles across lots of different asset markets that have made a small number of people very, very wealthy. And it's all been done through policy, through the policy of, of central banks, through the policy of an area of the state. Um, so the idea that, you know, these people are so wealthy because they've earned that wealth it's just utterly ridiculous. And at the same time as you have, you know, basically these very powerful state institutions propping up the wealth of the billionaire class, you have like less well-off people who um, are struggling to make ends meet, who are paying kind of usurious rates of interest on debt that they do have just to be able to survive. And when you put that in context, you can see that this is not a system that is built upon merit or desert it is basically kind of cronyism it's kind of oligarchy i think when bernie madoff was arrested for his financial dealings i couldn't feel so much anger towards him because i viewed him as a symptom of the larger system and the problems that exist within this system to include hedge funds hedge fund managers who are mostly not at all investigated and who go by with no problems. Meanwhile, the entire financial system is laid out as if it were a monopoly board. Who's closer to Park Row? Who's closer to Baltic Place? Who's closer to jail? And I kept thinking about the 700 billion bailout by the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, in 2008 and how you note in your article that these bankers knew that their organizations were too big to fail and that their collapse could bring down the world economy, end quote. This seems like the bailout of Wall Street from 2008 has set a precedent that bankers know that they can do no wrong because even when they do wrong, they know that they can rely on bailouts. It's almost like a de facto action that they can do anything they want with full knowledge that at the end of the day, their government will bail them out. Yeah, so the Bernie Madoff example is very interesting because um, obviously, you know, he uh, set up this huge Ponzi scheme that ultimately collapsed and uh, and he was, um, he was jailed as a result. Uh, and yet you could argue that our entire financial system is built on the logic of a kind of a Ponzi scheme. Um, certainly during periods of boom, there's an economist, Hyman Minsky, who looks at the dynamics of the financial cycle and says that um, during periods of kind of euphoria um, and speculative boom, you see moments of Ponzi finance, which are basically where um, private companies or financial institutions are borrowing so much that they're only ever earning enough to repay the interest on their outstanding loans. They're not able to kind of pay back the principal um, of that loan. And that's the point at which you've reached the, the stage of, of Ponzi finance. Um, and, you know, inevitably you're going to end up seeing a collapse at some point in the future. Now, you know, the difference there is that Madoff was sent to jail, whereas um, kind of bankers who were implicated in the financial crisis. Now, obviously, you know, None of these uh, chief executives will have known everything that was going on in their organization. And when you speak to them, a lot of people say, well, you know, it was just too complex for any one individual to understand. So it was inevitable that this was going to get out of control. But actually, a big thing that was um, that kind of stood behind the ability of these um, executives to actually take enough of a step back that they could say in good faith they didn't know what was going on in their organization um, was that they knew that any problems that they did get into, they would likely to be bailed out. And this is, you know, there's many, many precedents of private financial institutions receiving bailouts from central banks and, uh, and from, um, and from the government, you know, you had not that long before the financial crisis, long-term capital management, uh, being bailed out. Uh, and, um, you know, there are many, many, um, precedents for uh, for these um, for these bailouts to have occurred. 
you also had uh, central bank policy in the period running up to the financial crisis, very much geared towards making sure the boom continued. There's a, a kind of well-known um, theory as to the response to the um, the tech bubble bursting in the 2000s, um, where people refer to the Greenspan put, which is um, basically a way of saying that um, in the wake of that crisis, uh, Alan Greenspan, who was then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, was so keen to get the party going again that he slashed interest rates in such a way that financial market participants knew that no matter what happened after any crisis, interest rates would be slashed so low that the party would restart almost immediately things would kind of get going again because they'd be able to borrow cheaply to kind of um to so that things could get back to normal so the whole system is really geared towards making sure that asset prices go up consistently and that when there is a crash um the institutions that are uh, implicated in that crash, whether that's because they have done something actively illegal or whether it's just because they've done something um, kind of irresponsible, are not going to face the consequences of their actions. Now, of course, the exception that proves the rule was Lehman Brothers. Um, and, you know, there was clearly some level of, of shock as to what was going on, or maybe even a lack of understanding as to what was going on in the international financial system in 2007, when Lehman Brothers was allowed to collapse. But as soon as that happened, and the repercussions spread around the world, um, you know, the US state realized, right, we can't allow this to happen again. Um, and that is actually evidence of the kind of structural power of these institutions, that it's not simply that they have kind of cronyistic connections to the state. It's not just like, you know, that these are the guys in the room where the decisions are being made. It's actually that it's almost impossible to imagine the functioning of capitalism um, without some of these large financial institutions to allocate capital, to allocate credit. Um, and so they have this kind of structural power that means that even if you had a progressive government in there saying, look, you know, we want to kind of take on the banks, it would be very, very difficult for them to do so. Um, and again, this is why, so I've written a lot about why we need to kind of socialize and democratize finance um, and yeah, try and make sure that um, this power, which is a really significant power in the economy, it's basically a power to determine which projects, which innovations, which um, investments are able to grow, are able to access capital, that that power should be governed democratically. Here is where my head explodes during lockdown. I expected more people, even if only virtually, because we were all locked up around the world, to push back on some of the nonsense happening. Example, as you probably <laughs> uh, saw, one of the first things governments did was to protect those people paying back mortgages. And they put some kind of scenario in place where they were either, their mortgages were frozen in time or they could pay them back, but the interest rates would accumulate. Renters experienced often no such relief, none. Or in places like New York, the idea was, well, we'll let them pay it back later. Meanwhile, loads of people have lost work. How is a New Yorker who's unemployed going to pay back any rent, especially at the rates that they are there or in London as well? Why did politicians, even banks, not step up to the plate in terms of the most needed? Because yes, capitalism, but if I were a capitalist, I would be worried about the people rising up. These are serious repercussions. Obviously, in the UK, there was much more financial kicking in of the state, where in the US, I believe to this day, people have received two paltry checks of $600, which is nothing. What happened there that there seems to be such a disconnect between the poor and working class and the policymakers on the ground? So... I think the problem that you mentioned there about the difference in the treatment of um, private renters and uh, kind of wealthier participants in um, the in the system is a very interesting one, and it's a point I've constantly come back to over the course of this uh, of this crisis. The other day there was a headline, I think it was in Forbes, maybe the Washington Post, that said something like. Um, to help renters end the evictions moratorium, right? Um, which it was a really astonishing headline. Uh, the idea being that, you know, you have to allow the market to adjust and um, kind of correct for 
uh, yeah, the, the the changes that we've seen over the last year. But obviously, you know, the, the evictions moratorium we've have we've have have a similar evictions ban in the UK is something that has pr- like stood between. Um, many millions of people and homelessness effectively you know when the pandemic began there was a real concern before the furlough schemes that were announced before um, these moratoria were announced that you would see um, like just millions of people ending up in poverty if not actively homeless um, or in kind of temporary accommodation or in you know basically kind of at uh, in very, very difficult situations. Um, and the evictions ban has helped to prevent that in some cases, um, but it is coming to an end in the UK. It's going to be coming to an end in the US soon as well. Um, and there's nothing that has been put in place to make sure that renters who have not been paying their rent perhaps for the last year because they haven't been able to afford to um, are going to be able to adjust to that situation um, in you know a reasonable way. Many landlords will be approaching renters saying, right, you now have to repay all of the rent that you've missed over the course of however many uh, months. And renters just aren't going to be able to do that. So there will be a wave of evictions and people will be made homeless. And this is just, um, it's a fundamentally irrational, if not not also immoral um, feature of our system, which is that um, the the individuals who own the properties, which are being rented by predominantly younger people, predominantly less well-off people um, in the US and the UK, there is no reason why they shouldn't be able to forego uh, a certain amount of rent during a a period of time where people can't afford to pay their rents. There is no reason actually why rent should be so high in many of these places. you know, you can say it all comes down to supply and demand, but actually that isn't really how these things should be decided. They should be decided based on um, the kind of costs of the production of the particular good or service that is being provided. Now, of course, if you own a house, there are no real costs other than maintenance associated with being able to provide that as a um, as a kind of rented property. And indeed, you know, when you saw um, in the, the post-war period, the mass construction of publicly owned housing that was rented out at below market rates, that was a model that worked very well. It worked very well for not only the individuals in those houses, but also the public sector. You know, you are creating an asset, you are renting it out and it produces an income stream. And once you've created that asset, there's not that much that you have to do other than basic maintenance to make it function properly. Um, So the ongoing uh, transfer of wealth from predominantly younger, uh, predominantly less well-off people to the people who own the housing stock in the US and the UK, to private landlords, is not only unjust, it's really, really irrational. Because what are those private landlords doing with that cash? Generally, they're not doing anything productive with it. They're not using it to buy, to build new houses most of the time. Um, maybe it's going into their private pension pot. Maybe they're just kind of spending it. Uh, certainly in the UK, there's been a real trend of older people drawing down all of their pensions, using it to buy housing and then renting that out to younger people. So again, this is an intergenerational transfer a lot of the time, an upward intergenerational transfer in the context of massive disparities in wealth and income between Um, older people and younger people. So the kind of rentier based system that we have, uh, whereby huge amounts of wealth are transferred from people who have to work, from people who are kind of, you know, struggling to make ends meet to the people who monopolize like really necessary and really important resources in our society, whether that's land, housing or capital, as we were just talking about with the financial system, is um, a really kind of regressive feature of our democracies. And it's actually making our economies work less well. I wrote about that in my first book, Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. Um, And this is something actually that is not a kind of particularly radical left critique. It's something that most kind of progressive economists have historically agreed on. Keynes famously called for the euthanasia of the rentier. Um, so, you know, of these people who basically kind of monopolize these resources and don't produce anything particularly valuable, they simply rent them out to others at a cost. Um, it would make our economy function much, much better. Um, and indeed would go some way to kind of healing many of the rifts that have emerged in our society since the financial crisis, particularly those intergenerational ones. If 
we had a much better and more effective system of social housing, if we had rent controls, um, if we had ways of basically making sure that the things that people need can be provided um, at a reasonable cost. Yes, I wrote about, for the Morning Star several years ago, the fact that in the land registry, there's a huge percentage from 30 to 50% of the crown tenancies are not registered. It's not known who owns what. And I found this not coincidental to the state of things today where I have many friends in London who started buying up property in the 90s when one could, and their whole life revolves around owning multiple rental arrangements. Mm. And this raised questions for me because I have a real problem with the whole business of landlordship. Mm. And I saw, I lived in the Golden Lane Estate. That was one of the first council housing units built after the war. In fact, there was a huge bomb that had to be excavated from there before they could start building up the estate. I really love how Britain does council housing, how it did it, I should say. And the fact that this offered a way out for workers, you had key workers in the Golden Lane Estate, all my neighbors who were elderly were nurses, were teachers. They were brought in because obviously on a nurse's or teacher's salary, you couldn't afford London rent so easily. So these were necessary benefits for workers who were making less money. Obviously, you know what happened with Thatcher and the right to buy. We're seeing now with coronavirus, this population of people who have no time to protest, no way of physically protesting anyways, because we've been locked down. People are scrambling to find work. Those people who are working often are working several part-time jobs. And I get really frustrated when I see friends who are multiple home dwellers, even though we can critique Jeff Bezos on the one hand, these folks who say, oh, I need to put my flat on Airbnb, and they claim poverty. Now, I have ethical issues with that, because I think if you own a house in the center of Brighton, you're not poor. I think if you have a second house to rent out, maybe you should consider not making money from it. Again, I'm not an economist, Grace, but I have to wonder why there haven't been laws made that, for instance, people who own houses don't have any mortgages to pay on them. How can it be designed that people renting from them are merely paying their property tax or their home insurance as one model, for instance? Because we're just seeing loads of people going unmentioned in media. I write about this, but when I wrote for Forbes, they would never have run something like this. When I wrote a piece about the housing crisis in Singapore, they chucked out all criticism of the government of Singapore, saying that they have a very nasty relationship with the government who has lawyers send them letters should they criticize housing in Singapore. So housing is really it, because as you know, many Londoners and New Yorkers are paying 80% of their income to rent. What are some of the solutions to this, especially given that you have this overarching need of people who are clearly middle class to call themselves working class, having <laughs> extraordinary rental values placed on their homes as they claim the sharing economy, right? It's not. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only solution to this problem is the public provision of housing at below market rents um, and secure housing at below market rents, i.e., um, you know, council housing, basically. Um, so obviously, after the Second World War um, in the UK, we had a, a mass under a, the Atlee's Labour government, we had a, a massive project to build um, council homes. Uh, and those homes would be provided by councils at below market rents, um, they would be secure, uh, you know, you would be able to kind of pass those homes down from generation to generation. Um, and that model worked very well and kept rents low, of course, because if you had the option of renting in the the, um, the public sector, then that would place a, a ceiling on rents for most people other than at the top end of the market in the private sector. Um, and you also had a system of rent controls in the private sector as well. Uh, so, you know, housing was much more affordable. It was much more affordable to rent and more people did rent as a result. And, you know, that was a, a system that 
many people were happy with because it wasn't the kind of experience of renting that we have today, which is highly insecure. You can be evicted at any moment. Tenancies are short. There's, um, you know, a, a huge amount of cost that is associated with even just the process of renting somewhere. Um, so, and that system was so, so much better. Now, of course, we know that in the 1980s, much of that social housing stock was sold off on the cheap um, uh, as part of basically the Thatcherite attempt to create a, um, a nation of homeowners who would have a long-term interest in the stability of the system. Um, so, you know, you wanted to create a class of people who basically um, relied upon house prices remaining high, remaining stable, um, because they would be much more likely to support policies that would also benefit the 1%. Um, so, you know, whether that is to do with tax, whether it's to do with monetary policy, whatever. And ultimately, this bargain worked. And we see it in operation today in the UK, with basically the Conservatives consistently having this huge majority based on um, homeowners plus the elite. Um, and obviously, you know, the Conservative government works probably in the interests of that elite, but those homeowners are um, hoping to kind of cling on to the gains, the often huge capital gains that have been made um, in the period between the 1970s and today when house prices have just exploded. Um, and, you know, that's a very potent political combination. It's what makes uh, thinking about, uh, you know, rebuilding a model of uh, of social housing much more difficult because, and, and certainly of introducing things like rent controls, because there is this hugely powerful lobby of homeowners and of private landlords. You know, the Conservatives have created over 700,000 new private landlords in the UK over the last 10 years. That is a very powerful lobby that stands in the way of any real reform. So if we actually do want to see change, if we want to see more social housing, if we want to see rent controls, then we're going to have to organise to demand that. Now, you're clearly on the left from everything I've read from you. Now, here's my question. You probably deal with a lot of people who are anti-capitalist absolutists. Is capitalism the problem to a lot of the issues that we've been discussing? For instance, should there be caps on how much income Jeff Bezos cannot earn? Should people be limited to owning one home and rental become a thing of the past that all rental is in fact maybe state-appropriated housing that goes to someone else after you move or die. Because I struggle with this a lot from my friends who claim poverty, Airbnb, and I'm going to straddle what happened to you earlier this month on Twitter, which I found fascinating, I've got to say, when you wrote, class has nothing to do with your accent, where you live, where you grew up, what your parents do, where you went to school. These things remain important in supporting certain individuals to change their class position, but they don't come into the definition of class. When you wrote that, I thought, I thought she was British because that would have been <laughs> something an American would have written, right? And then I read, and I read it again. Then I read your follow-up where you wrote, before I get accused of economism, I'd like to point out that there's no such thing as the economy, only social relations of various kinds. What we're establishing isn't what matters more, the social or the economic. It's what kinds of social relations shape class position. What I love that. And it made me think a lot of certain definitions of class uh, from Marx to Lukács, actually. And I, I kept thinking about this because I've had this discussion where I had to arrange my barometer while living in London about this very issue. Because I would meet one journalist living in Crouch End of all places who claims being working class. And I just was like, wait, I can't afford a childminder in Crouch End. That's like very wealthy part of London. Mm. So the British do hold on to, uh, historically speaking, class as what my father and mother did. Did I yeah. grow up in a council flat? What part of town yeah. or what town did I grow up in? And Americans, we don't do that. First of all, we don't even discuss class. It's so exorciated from culture. But when we do, it has much more to do with at this very second, how much money do you have in the bank? And do you own a house and what kind of car? So yeah, can you discuss 
with that Twitter storm, which I really loved because people were really hating on people I liked were like hating on you. And I'm like, I think they missed your point. Well, I mean, I think so as well. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, the, the problem there is that um, there's there's two different things, I suppose, that you're talking about there. What I was talking about um, is the understanding of class as a category within this system of capitalism, right? And it's a category that on the Marxist understanding, which is my understanding, emerges from the relations of production. So it is about who owns what. Um, and when you understand it in those terms, which is, you know, an incredibly important category. For, I mean, it's just the foundation of what capitalism is. Capitalism is a class system in which class position is defined by the relations of production. Um, it is impossible to understand capitalism without having that kind of conception of class. Um, and yeah, the, the issue is, of course, is that, you know, that definition of class, that understanding of what class even is and the way that we use class in a daily basis are two different things because you're right in the UK people are obsessed with the idea of class as a kind of um metric as showing where you came from right so you know the aristocracy and the landed gentry are one class um and you know that's all about maintaining an idea of uh you know um yeah kind of a lineage going back to uh you know even pre-capitalist social relations that allow you to say i'm you know earl or of whatever um there's uh you know this tradition of saying that because my parents or even my grandparents um you know lived in a council estate and uh had working class jobs i am therefore working class because i was raised in a working class environment right even if you're now like a um, you know, the owner of a big business that employs loads of people, you can still say, oh, well, I'm working class because I was raised in this environment. Um, so, you know, there are these very strange uh, definitions of class identity, which is, I think, one thing. But class as a social category is, I would say, a different phenomenon to class as identity. Now, they're interlinked um, because obviously the way, you know, you cannot activate a sense of class consciousness without being able to kind of uh, formalize that in an identity to which people relate. But as a category for understanding how capitalism works, class as something defined by the relations of production, are you someone who owns the stuff? Are you someone who manages the stuff on behalf of the people who owns the stuff? Or are you someone who is forced to work often in poor conditions and with low levels of autonomy? That is all that matters, basically. And then, you know, there's liminal classes. There's kind of the petit bourgeoisie, people who have small businesses, people who are excluded from these kinds of relationships altogether because they are, um, you know, unable to find work like the aristocracy, the rentiers, etc. But ultimately, those are the categories that really matter. And by trying to kind of basically hide that element of it with this discussion, with the sole focus on, on identity, um, we kind of really, I suppose, we lose a critical category for being able to understand how the world works and how capitalism works. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, is this on par with the people I keep meeting? When I was living in London, I would meet so many people who saw it because they only owned four flats that they rented out in London. They were tight economically. One complained about how much an iPhone costs. And I thought, you have four homes in central London. So there seems to be a disconnect. If you recall, about two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, The Guardian ran a piece about the superfluous nature of the middle, upper middle class who identify as poor despite their not being so. Is there some cachet in our culture today despite how much money you make. I mean, one of the people re responded to your tweet saying, I've been a company director for various international corporates for over 25 years, earning six figure basics plus benefits traveling the world. I have a refined Middles Middlesbrough accent. I grew up in a council estate named the Bronx. 
and my dad was a bus driver. And another goes on about your working class then, even if you win a billion pounds on the lottery tomorrow, it won't change your upbringing, education, or values. So I read those responses to your tweet wondering, is there an upstaging happening? Is there an oppression Olympics amongst the middle class about who is the least middle class so they have to liken themselves? It's very frustrating to me, especially during this time of a pandemic where, come on, give, give me a break. If you're earning six figures, even if you, your father was coming from a workhouse, let's say Dickinsonian time, that's simply not working class in the real effect of what class means. Poverty, being facing eviction, not owning property. What's happening that it's not just in England this is happening. I'm seeing this a lot in the West where people are having this almost competitive oppression Olympics amongst the middle class to eke out an identity of being oppressed when they're not. Yeah. I mean, so I, yeah, there is this kind of um, desire, I suppose, to understand class in terms of, of oppression, right? Um, and, um, you know, there are certain elements where when we're talking about class as identity, in which that is, you know, probably true. Like I focus less on these questions of kind of identity than I do on kind of questions of structure. But that is certainly the case. The issue, though, is that class, the the class relationship is, is not, I mean, it is defined by oppression. But the defining feature of the class relationship under capitalism is that it's defined by exploitation, which is something quite different to oppression. Um, you know, oppression would be the kind of use of power to, um, yeah, I suppose, like, keep people down, to uh, crush any resistance, to kind of, you know, keep them in the, in the position that they find themselves in. And that is critical in sustaining a whole um, plethora of hierarchical relationships across capitalism. But the thing that's unique about class is that it's defined by this thing called exploitation, which is, you know, the fact that you are um, as a result of being someone who does not own the things that you need to survive from the get-go, forced to sell your labor power for a wage. Um, and uh, the person to whom you are selling that labor power will make often extortionate amounts of money from the difference between the wage that they pay you and the, the amount that they're able to sell the output that you produce for, as well as denying you basic things like or, you know, your own autonomy, separating you off um, from the things that you're producing, kind of creating these really like, you know, Tayloristic forms of, of management that deny you any autonomy. Um, that's what exploitation means. Um, and it is something that is unique to capitalism and it's something that's unique to the class relationship within capitalism. Um, and it's critical for understanding how capitalism works. Oppression is important for a lot of reasons for, you know, understanding how people understand the world, for understanding why there is so often little resistance to exploitation. But it is a different category than this thing called exploitation. And I don't think that most people even really know what exploitation is. I was talking to Jason Hill, an American philosopher who spoke about this, people's need to talk about a kind of oppression when what they're talking about is not at all oppression, but there is real oppression in the world. So we lose sight of, of the real by talking about ourselves often. Uh, I was thinking about your reference now to Taylorism, because a lot of times we'll watch, even watching Charlie Chaplin, let's say, and he's making a critique in modern times. It's quite brilliant for the time it was made, in fact. But I, I, I return back to the renter class because I had one of my readers write me recently saying, my family thinks themselves leftists. They, are, they were on board with Corbyn, but they're all landowners. They're all renting out to people and they're worried about getting paid during the pandemic. Isn't that not leftist? I'm paraphrasing this person's email to me. And I thought, well, I wrote her back and I said, well, this is the problem is we have a disconnect between, let's leave the multi-billionaires to one side. What's right below them, or maybe two steps below them, is the upper middle class, the people who buy second and third homes to rent out. And not to hate on these people, but they are a part of the chink of validation, even symbolically, of the wealth that I'm forced to read every time I click on CNN. I feel like I'm reading Hello Magazine. It's, it's either about the Duchess of this or 
the next billionaire that we're supposed to admire because he or she has amassed billions. Mm. Aren't we feeding into this system, those of us who are multi-property owners who then rent out properties for fees that we don't maybe need or maybe we shouldn't be charging. And I know what I'm suggesting might be radical to listeners who are very much uh, right of center and many people even to the left of center. I have loads of friends who hated on Trump these last years, voted for Biden, do not understand me when I say Biden is more to the right than Trump on many issues, but let's leave that uh, for a moment. And they believe themselves to be leftists, but they're multiple homeowners and they partake in the very same system that, I mean, it's not the exact same as Bezos, but it's a capitalist system of let's put something out there, let's charge a price for it and let's make money simply because, I mean, let's look at what home ownership is. It's being able to either afford land in the first place, which most people on the planet can't do. And secondly, just having inherited it. So what are the mechanisms that people can maybe begin to understand how home ownership, multiple home ownership might be part of the problem or is it a problem? And I'm just exaggerating here because I look at what income we all make and the fact that living in large cities much of my life, I've had to myself pay a majority of my income to housing. So if people have housing, a lot of questions around poverty are already solved right there. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, this has been central to the experience of working class people for many, many years. En Engels famously wrote about um, the question of housing um, and its centrality to kind of radicalizing people, I suppose, and realizing um not just the ways in which they're exploited in their workplaces, but also the ways in which they're kind of kept actually, you know, actively kind of oppressed and, um, you know, stolen from in other areas of, of, uh, of society. Um, so, yeah, this has always been central to the experience of, uh, of people who are dispossessed, basically, who have no choice other than to sell their labor power in order to survive and who have no choice other than to pay huge portions of their income to, um, private landlords in order to have a, a roof over their heads. You know, you've seen this, um, examples of this over the course of the pandemic of renters who have not paid their rent because the evictions bans meant that they can do that without being evicted. And they've been able to say up, save up for a deposit. Um, I think I remember seeing uh, on Twitter a, a screenshot of a landlord complaining that um, a, a tenant who hadn't paid their rent for a certain number of months had been able to buy a house. <laughs> I um, saw that. <laughs> so... Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you, know, you know, the whole system, the kind of maintenance of the wealth of those at the very top depends upon keeping a large section of the population um, in that position where they are unable to save up in order to afford to buy a home. And this is particularly a problem for younger people who, for a whole variety of reasons, are um, living through a period where capitalism seems to have lost its dynamism and really just lost the ability to provide rising living standards. Um, you know, millennials are in the UK at least uh, set to be the worst, the first generation that is likely to be worse off than their parents since those things have been recorded in the history of modern capitalism. You know, we've had all these crises which have uh, depressed employment for younger people. We've had long-term wage stagnation, partly the result of the decline of the labor movement. We've had um, this uh, economy that is based on asset price inflation in which you know, those who own assets already have gotten richer and richer and richer, whilst those who don't are forced to uh, pay extortionate amounts just for the use of those assets. Um, and all of these things are really damaging young people, not to mention the fact that we're you know on the, the brink of this uh, insane climate crisis, which is going to affect all of our lives, but particularly young people who are going to be the ones that are living through it and have to kind of try and reorganize the world in order to, to deal with it. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of intergenerational chasm that has opened up has a huge amount to do with this question of, of, uh, of housing. And it's a big part of what explains why young people are so much more likely to support quite radical socialist candidates. If you look at um, the split in terms of voting between older and younger people and between homeowners and non-homeowners, younger renters 
are all disproportionately likely to have supported Corbyn, Sanders, relatively left-wing candidates, um, because they basically said, we don't think that you should be spending the rest of your lives shut out from um, a secure form of employment, a secure, stable roof over your head, and just basic levels of kind of, you know, living standards that people would have expected as normal just a few decades ago. Um, the inability of the system that we live in now to provide younger people with any sense that the future is going to be better than the past is a real problem for the legitimacy of capitalism. I saw a Twitter post about six months ago by someone who wrote, I have been renting for 10 years, I'm paraphrasing, I just realized that I've paid, and she put the number up, it was extraordinary amount of rent, mm. tens of thousands, and I realized that I'm not even 30 and I've just bought my landlord a house. And I've seen a lot of these kinds of tweets floating about where people, because of lockdown, because of either having to pay under duress rent, because duress meaning they don't want to be in debt come later this year for five figures of rent. And they're beginning to put things together. Another person wrote, if my rent money is paying for my landlord's mortgage, shouldn't I be part owner? So people yeah. are putting the pieces together where the difference between who's renting and who's owning is a perspectival one, if I might. <laughs> mm. And are there arguments to be made to end this form of renting? Or will the middle upper class and they seem to have been historically as well, will they be an obstacle to the rights of the working class and the lower middle class even? Because now, as you just mentioned, it's not just in the UK. We're going to see a decrease in wealth in many Western countries where people will... It's, Germany has got to be one of the few countries in the EU where a very small percentage comparatively own homes and rental markets there are far lower in expense in general outside of Berlin. And will we start to see that, you know, people want to maybe rise up, vote more left, but to what degree can they? Because as long as you have, you know, the genius of Margaret Thatcher's right to buy scheme was she also bought herself a lot of voters, if you catch my drift. You know, she was able to convince people who considered themselves to be working class and poor and on the left that she was their man, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, the political economy of housing is central to what we understand today is neoliberalism. Um, the shift, the neoliberal turn of the 1980s was premised on two main things. One of which was the decimation of the labor movement. And the other of which was the creation of a class of um, asset owners, of working class asset owners who could be relied upon to support the system. Um, and that really, it transformed um, the sociology of many of the economies in which it was which it was tried, the UK is um, a very very clear example of that of just a massive shift towards people being able to own their own homes, in the context of a massive property bubble that effectively generated you know in the same way as uh, central banks have propped up the wealth of people like Bezos through quantitative easing, the bubble that preceded the two thousand and eight financial crisis in housing generated hundreds of thousands of pounds, sometimes millions of pounds worth of capital gains for the section of the population who was able to afford their own homes. Um, and uh, this really stabilized the political economy of neoliberalism. It ensured that even if, you know, wages were stagnant because of the decimation of the labor movement, even if public services were being eviscerated, even if you had a massive financial crisis that saw, you know, millions of people unemployed, a, a majority of voters would support things remaining the same. They would support the status quo because they have this wealth tied up in um, these assets and they need to make sure that those assets retain their value. Uh, owning a home, you know, the, the logic of owning a home of what's kind of, you know, what you might call of asset-based welfare, uh, where rather than having kind of socialized and collectivized forms of social insurance, you have individuals who have to build up their own pots of wealth to make to, to allow themselves to feel secure. Um, 
is is highly conservative. It encourages people to think and behave in ways that you know support the maintenance of uh, of the status quo. Um, and we are still living in a world in which that is true. We are still living in a world in which property owners, broadly speaking, would rather see um, a a dying economy, a dying planet. Um, and you know all sorts of social and political problems continue as long as the value of their homes stays the same. And you know what? It's rational. You understand to an extent. It's rational. You understand why people are thinking in those ways because the logic of neoliberalism is such an individualized one, where we have to all take care of our own security, where everyone has to rely on the stuff that they have in the bank, the assets that they have. Where you are discouraged from thinking about social solutions to social problems. Um, so really, you know, the only way to actually get around that is to uh, support, I suppose, the reemergence of various different forms of kind of collective solutions to these problems and of social solidarity, getting people involved in political projects, in social projects, in, um, you know, various different forms of mutual aid is critical for encouraging them to see themselves as part of a collective that is able to work together to solve society's problems. Well, you hit upon this when you, in that day of the Twitter storm over one of your tweets, you linked to an article by Ellen Mikeson Wood, The Separation of the Economic and the Political in Capitalism, which you highly recommended. I read it. And she writes, the starting point of capitalist production is, she's quoting Marx, is nothing else in the historical process of divorcing the producer from the means of production, end quote. A process of class struggle and bloody intervention by the state on behalf of the expropriating class, she writes. The very structure of the argument suggests that for Marx, the ultimate secret of capitalist production is a political one. I love this because this speaks to a lot of what we're discussing right now. She writes also what distinguishes his analysis so radically from classical political economy is that it creates no sharp discontinuities between economic and political spheres. And he is able to trace the continuities because he treats the economy itself, not as a network of disembodied forces, but like the political sphere as a set of social relations. And I think part of the problem today is that people are separating the two and they do so because neoliberalism commands it. We can't possibly think of how much rent can we get for our remaining seven properties if we unite the political and the social. People divorce the two. Friends of mine in London who, again, own many, many homes. They, one of them said to me in an embarrassed moment, I know that this isn't like the best thing to do, but what could we do? We were living in London, banks were throwing money at us. It was so easy to get a mortgage until recently. And we just took advantage of it because we've got to look out for ourselves. So the system pits individuals against individuals. That's one reading. Another reading is, well, and maybe a more Foucauldian reading is, we allow ourselves to be pit against each other because power is not just top down. It's all of us contributing to it. Mm. Is there a way out for people who may be multiple landowners? Is there an ethical form of landlordeering in this era? Or is the only answer to do what maybe St. Ives does? I love St. Ives because they have a policy. You cannot buy a second home in St. Ives. I believe that's what their local council decided. So they stopped this influx of Londoners coming to buy summer homes and it sort of leveled the plateau for first home buyers in the area. I mean, I think, again, you know, you have to locate all of these issues within the logic of capitalism itself. And when you do so, everything comes back to the question of ownership. So who owns what and how is that ownership managed? Um, and the democratic socialist alternative is to say that rather than having lots of individual people individually owning things, uh, we have the socialization of all of our most important resources, one of which would be housing. So, you know, rather than having individuals own these things and then rent them out, we just own them together. You know, it, it, people are kind of shocked at the idea um, that you could have rather than selling council housing uh, to, to private individuals, you could have councils buying housing and renting it out. 
um, and renting it out at much lower rents with the the idea that, you know, they would be, yes, supporting um, people to be able to, to rent more affordably, but also solving a whole load of other problems that actually cost the public sector tons of money, like homelessness and all those kinds of associated issues. And it is just a very sensible and rational idea, but people can't really imagine that society could work that way anymore because we are so accustomed to believing that as individuals, we all have to individually solve all of our problems. That is really the foundational ideology of neoliberalism. Um, and you're right, you know, we all reproduce it in our own heads, in our, in our own lives all the time. Um, I don't, however, think that that is uh, a kind of, unshakable feature of the system in which we live I think that by changing the way we think we can begin to challenge some of those uh, those patterns of uh, of belief and of behavior and the best way to change the way you think is to exist in communities and organizations and uh, movements that allow you to see different ways that human beings can relate to one another and different ways that we can organize the world and organize society. So by far the most effective form of, you know, radicalization is just to join a collective movement, even if it, it's doing something like trying to save your local library or a mutual aid network that's emerged, emerged during the pandemic. You suddenly begin to see that human beings can relate to one another in different ways. Um, and that we can kind of imagine different ways of organizing society, different ways of organizing social relations. And I think that is the foundation of any movement. It should be the foundation of any movement, not just to move beyond neoliberalism, but to move beyond capitalism. So no calls for expropriation anytime soon. Well, I mean, you know, we'll see, right? Like, I think that will have to be, uh, personally, I think that is the only solution to the housing crisis is actually saying that um, at some, you know, at some point we will need to have compulsory purchasing of certain properties um, to bring them back into the public sector to allow them to be rented out at below market rents at the same time as having a big program of social house building to creating new housing that is environmentally sustainable and retrofitting the existing housing stock as well. Um, I've written a number of different policy suggestions as to how we might get there. But ultimately, you know, um, whether you want to call it expropriation, whether you want to call it socialization and democratization, we do need to make sure that we are moving towards a, a system in which we collectively own many, many more of our resources, including housing. Thank you.